Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today we welcome staff writer at The Atlantic and New York Times bestselling author Adam Serwer to the podcast to discuss his new book, The Cruelty is the Point, The Past, Present, and Future of Trump's America. Our conversation covers a lot of ground from the importance of the historical record to running as a part of Adam's creative process. Plus, you'll never guess who Adam's first writing teacher in college was. The Snacks Book Club pick for August is Emergency Contact by Mary H.K. Choi. We'll be discussing the book on the show on Wednesday, August 25th with Juliet Littman. If you love the Stacks and want to support the show, please consider joining the Stacks Pack. You earn perks like our monthly virtual book club and shout outs on the show. Just know that without the Stacks Pack, there is no show. It's as simple as that. And I'm forever grateful to the folks who value my work enough to put their dollars behind it. If you want to join the Stacks Pack, head to patreon.com slash the Stacks. Thank you to our newest members of the Stacks Pack, Kate Bernstein, Sandra Bookhard, Jennifer Ross, Tracy Foster, Patricia White, Jessica Stone Weaver, Olivia Sears, Melissa Ramos, Julia Rumenap, and Bobby Joe DeBrun. I can't thank you all enough for your generosity and for allowing me to make a show that I love and I'm proud of. Okay, enough of all that sincerity. Let's talk with Adam Serwer. All right, everybody. I'm very excited. I'm here today with Adam Serwer, whose new book is called The Cruelty is the Point. It's a collection of essays over time, and it's really terrifying and fantastic. So Adam, welcome to The Stacks. Thank you for having me, and thank you for that very kind introduction. <laughs> I don't know. Do people describe your book as terrifying often? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, I'm wonderful at parties. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a barrel of laughs. Um, yeah, I mean, look, uh, it's 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 kind of grim. I mean, I think the last five years have been pretty grim. I mean, it, particularly in terms of what the country discovered about itself and what it was willing to. Um, accept and sustain. Um, And and I think that the nature of things is that uh, public memory can be uh, manipulated and altered to justify things that happened in the past that shouldn't be justified. Mm. And, uh, you know, the book is an attempt at, you know, leaving a record. I mean, obviously it's, it's, it's from my perspective, it's, it's my, uh, you know, assessment of those years. 
it's an attempt to leave a record of the past administration that, um, in sh- it, it, that in my view, uh, uh, will allow people to understand how bad it was that people knew it was bad at the time and that there was a, a constant effort to manipulate public memory, not to understand how bad it was uh, that was taking place even then, uh, let alone, you know, after, after the moment passed. And you can see this happen. I mean, you saw it happen. I, I think the first time you really see this is with Charlottesville mm-hmm. um, when the president says, you know, they're very fine people on both sides. And one of the sides is a Klan rally. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, people try to say, oh, well, he just meant the peaceful protesters who, uh, you know, who, who supported not removing the Lee statue. And it's like, well, well, those people weren't there. There were there were people who showed up because they understood it was a far right, um, you know, alt right KKK neo-Nazi rally. Uh, that's why David Duke was there. Um, and so, you know, you you sort of see it happening again with the Capitol riot where people are now trying to say that, um, you know, this, (laughs) it was just people who tourists who got lost or something, (laughs) or nobody was ever in any danger or, you know, and it's, you know, American politics is often a fight over public memory. And so this is my attempt to, uh, give, uh, the country a record of the Trump years that I hope uh, will be able to pierce through, uh, you know, the veil of that dishonesty, which I think is inevitable. Yeah. I think one of the things that really stuck out to me in reading the book is what you mentioned kind of a little bit ago, which is there are people in the moment who are against the thing that is happening. Right. Like, I think we, like people often will be like, Oh, everyone, you know, my, my family was living in the South during the civil rights movement and they, you know, spat Mm -hmm. on black people, but everybody was spitting on black people. And it's like, wait a second, like, no, there were white people who were fighting against this stuff too. And like, there were people who were actively talking about who, who weren't Martin Luther King. You know what I mean? Like there were people who Mm -hmm. were like everyday Americans, quote unquote, whatever that Mm -hmm. means, white people. Um, and so I think like having what you've written in the moment is a reminder that we all, not we all, but many of us knew that it was wrong at the time. And I think that that is just so powerful to have. And I'm wondering why it was important for you to go back and write introductions to the essays, because for Mm -hmm. folks who aren't familiar with the book yet, you should definitely get it. Um, Each chapter has an introduction written by Adam in the present and then there is the actual essay that was written for most of them in the past at the time that was published in the Atlantic, which is where Adam works. Um, and so I'm wondering why it was important for you to kind of write these introductions in 2020 and 2021. I, I think that it was important to look back in hindsight and like look at things that, you know, I may not have gotten quite right or things, you know, the way that things may have changed or the way that observations I made were actually substantiated by events. I mean, you know, I, I, I think that, um, you know, in some cases I was, uh, you know, in, in some specific cases, I said things that people thought were extremely controversial or that they didn't like. Um, in particular, I wrote about how the Trump administration's response to the coronavirus pandemic mm. uh, changed after the statistics showing uh, tremendous racial disparities in coronavirus transmission um, were revealed. 
And at the time, people were like, well, why would Trump care about that? He's, you know, he's watching Fox News every day. He's not he's not worried about that. He's, you know, people people. Uh, this is what I used to call the incompetence defense, mm-hmm. which is where people would imply that Trump was somehow did not have the mental faculty to understand the implications of something he said or did. And then, of course, you know, he came out and was like, well, you know, the deaths don't count if they're in blue states. Right. And of course, this is a, a, an absurd reductionism because. Um, you know, there are the, Texas is a red state. There are m- millions of Democrats in Texas. Right. Uh, you know, there are millions and millions of Trump supporters in California, um, despite the fact that California is a blue state. So, you know, what he's saying is like your life does not count if you uh, by association live in a state that did not give Donald Trump his uh, its electoral votes. Right. And that understanding of America, where he was president of a part of the country um, at, the way that my colleague Ron, Ron Brownstein put it is he's a wartime president um, uh, for red America at war with blue America. That is just such a terrible thing for democracy because it's, it, you know, it, it's when an elected representative feels as though they have no civic obligations to the people who did not vote for them. Um, it means that they uh, feel comfortable subjecting, not, not only ignoring their desires, but subjecting them to maltreatment, which is, of course, what happened. Um, so I felt like it was important to reflect, you know, on things that I got right on, on things that I may have been mistaken about. Um, but also just to remember, you know, what we were thinking at the time when this, when this was happening. And as you point out, there's this, you know, there's this kind of defensive history where people say things like, you know, well, everybody thought that way at the time. And I think that's, um, you know, that often, that defense often ignores what people really did think at the time. Uh, you know, I, I was, I'm, I was reading a lecture by uh, John Hope Franklin called Racial Equality in America that he gave in 1976. Um, and he's talking about how Thomas Jefferson wanted to put an anti-slavery clause into the Declaration of Independence. And he thought that he could get this in um, by blaming the crown for the slave trade, because that way he wouldn't antagonize tensions over slavery between North, North and South. Um, and, uh, you know, it didn't work. <laughs> he, he didn't right. get it in. Um, and then he continued to own people as slaves. Right. Um, so, you know, it, it's not that he did not understand it was wrong. It was that he knew it was wrong and he went ahead anyway. Uh, when people say like someone is a person of their time, I mean, it's true that, you know, m- uh, moral standards change and they change in part because they're, and in fact, the only t- reason they change is that people at the time when supposedly nobody thinks something is wrong, think something is wrong and say, we need to change this. Right. Um, so it, it's sort of a, it, it, it's an argument that kind of collapses in on itself. Yeah, no, it, I mean, it definitely does. And, and we see it in our lives. I think we just forget about it in other in the past. And so I think that's like, what's so great. I mean, right. you're a ridiculous, like your writing is so ridiculously incredible because you are writing about this current moment, right? Like in your work, I mean, we subscribe to the Atlantic. You're, you're the third Atlantic writer I've had on the podcast this year, which truly is like the greatest thing that's (laughs) ever happened to me because I'm such a super fan of the Atlantic. So just so you know, you're in great company. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for agreeing. But what you do that's so incredible is that you find ways to talk about the current moment and bring history in as like a very much living part of the conversation. And I think that, you know, we, I'm seeing this in the book, I see it in your writing and I, I feel like I understand why it's important, but I'm also 
curious, like, why is that context so important to you? Like, why do you put in that extra work to bring in these little tidbits about the historical figures that are connected to immigration in America? And what do you think we would lose without those pieces? So, you know, one of my editors, uh, one of my former editors at Mother Jones, he's, uh, he's a man named David Korn. Um, and he said to me uh, many years ago, he said, the news uh, is not just what's new. It's also what people have forgotten. And among journalists, the news is what's new is a sort of it's an it's an old timey refrain that's meant to say, um, you know, it, 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 to get something in the paper, you know, it has to be something that people did not previously know. Mm-hmm. But often readers don't have the context. Like if you're a beat reporter, you know everything on the subject that you write about. But readers often don't have that in that whole context. And there is a, w- a way in which journalism is very focused on the present. And so sometimes they can avoid the past um, or, or avoid uh, uh, relevant past, relevant context. And the way I look at it is history is kind of like a map to where we are. Um, and without that map, you can get really lost really quickly uh, because you don't know how you got there. Um, and so, uh, if, you know, for the past five years, you know, I was just sort of approaching this as, you know, a lot of us, I think, felt lost. Like, how do we go from Barack Obama to Donald Trump? And uh, this book is kind of like a map. Um, you know, it's drawing on the work of, you know, some brilliant historians who, you know, there's a big bibliography in the back of the book. There are too, there are too many recommendations to name. Um, <laughs> but, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a map. It's like, this is how we got here. Um, and this is, you know, n- not necessarily where we're going, but, but these are the conditions that are going to continue to shape our future. When you, because you have all this knowledge and you understand history and what's going on when you're right what is that like? Does that suck or does it feel good? Um, I, you know, it's actually, I mean, it, it's often miserable to be right, given what I'm writing about. Right, That's kind of um, what I was but, thinking. You know, <laughs> but like, one of the things is like, I, I'm always, people are always, um, you know, people have an assessment of my writing is pessimistic. Um, but the flip side of like all these dark chapters in American history that I'm writing about that brought us to this point is that there are people on the other side who are fighting it. Right. Um, and those people are inspirational to me. Um, you know, those people uh, are looking at the at the unjust world in which they live, and they are making a decision to try and make uh, the future better for their children. And I find that um, tremendously admirable and inspirational. And I also always try to emphasize to people what we were um, and what made us what we are today does not necessarily define what we have to be later on. We can make different decisions. People can change. At the end of Reconstruction, you know, part of the reason why Reconstruction ended the way that it did was that, you know, there wasn't really like, even though there was a majority of white people wanted to abolish slavery, there wasn't really a majority of white people who wanted like real political equality for black people. Mm. Um, There was an ideological and partisan interest in extending the franchise to black men um, during Reconstruction. But, you know, if you look at the radical Republicans, they're often like, oh, we don't mean social equality. We don't mean like, you know, your daughter is going to can can marry one of these people, Uh, you know. And so this is this is like, obviously, you know, this actually changed fairly recently. Like, I think like the the uh, the the, a, a majority of Americans began to support 
interracial marriage, I believe in the 90s, which is like a statistical thing that I attribute to the Kevin Costner, Whitney Houston film, The Bodyguard. Oh my God, yes. But I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking, but only kind of, but only kind of, because who knows, it, that might have really been it. But, you know, th- th- there is, there's, um, you know, what's interesting about Trumpism to me is that it never commanded a majority. It right. was always reliant on the ideal geographic distribution of uh, Republicans' political support across the Electoral College and across sparsely populated states. It was never a majority of the country that was on board with this. And I don't, you couldn't really say that in 1968 when Nixon got elected. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a majoritarian, like a majority of the country was on board with the Southern strategy. Right. Um, you know, a majority of the country in 1877 did not think black people should be equal to white people in like a social sense. Isn't that um, scarier, uh, uh, though, that like tr- all that Trump and Trumpism was able to do, they were able to do without actually being the majority? Like, to me, that's like if ever if the majority of the people believe in this thing, then like we have to fight against that thing. But if the majority of the people don't even believe it and we still are like they're still in power and they're still implementing all this, that to me is like seems so much worse. Um, In some ways, it's worse, right? Because you know, part of what this does is is that system, which is reliant on the counter-majoritarian levers of American democracy to sustain itself, it is reliant on Trump's sort of politics of impending apocalypse, right? Um, it becomes more and more urgent to persuade the base that you're relying on that they're on the verge of destruction at the hands of their fellow Americans. And so anything they do to prevent that destruction is justified. And that includes, as we're seeing now, you know, attempts to disenfranchise or marginalize democratic constituencies in the states um, because they have convinced themselves uh, they're the only true Americans. They're the only ones who are really entitled to run the country. And so, you know, and, and if and if uh, liberals were allowed to hold power for any length of time, uh, that would lead to the end of the end of America. Um, and as long as, you know, that's a viable path structurally um, through our political system, the Republican Party is going to continue uh, to pursue that kind of politics. And we know that's true because, you know, as I talk about extensively in the book, that was how the Democratic Party used to be. Uh, right. You know, the Democratic Party was one of the uh, oldest white supremacist institutions in American life. Um, but then, you know, there is this miracle, which is that a coalition of unions, urban liberals um, and black voters and black activists like completely alter the nature of this organization that, you know, uh, was was the party of slavery and secession and Jim Crow into the party of civil rights. Um, so things, you know, the country, like, in the same way that it would have been, you know, very hard to predict in 2012 that Donald Trump was going to be the next president in the United States, um, you know, we don't necessarily know that what Republicans are trying to do right now in terms of severing um, uh, severing their power from the ability of the public to withdraw their support for that power. Um, we don't know that that's going to work the way that they intend it to work. Um, things, uh, you know, life simply does not always proceed as y- you plan for it to. Um, so in some sense it is scary. Um, it's certainly, you know, it, it is anti-democratic in a way that perhaps in a different way than it was previously. Mm. And I don't really have a solution to the problem other than that the Democratic Party have to make structural changes to the system to make it more fair than it currently is. Um, And it doesn't appear as though they're willing to do that. 
Um, but, you know, I don't know that it's a worse situation than, you know, the one that m- my, my, you know, my parents were born into, for example. Sure. Sure. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I don't, I don't mean to suggest that this is worse than Jim Crow or slavery or anything like that, but just the idea that like, it's possible to do all this without the problem. mandate from the people is just, it's, I mean, it's very scary. Yeah. It's a different problem. You're right. It's a different problem. Um, can I, so the title essay, the cruelty is the point was that was, I mean, that was a huge essay when it came out. Um, it's fantastic. And my big question around that is, does the opposite of the cruelty exist in the sense that there's some uniting force that people could feel good around that's like compassionate? Or do we just think that like we're, it's always got to be a uniting force around like the worst of us? No, I mean, I think, I think if you look at, um, so I'll say one thing, democracy is a system for managing conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's always going to be conflict in democracy. Democracy is the means to manage it nonviolently without bloodshed. And so, you know, there's always going to be some level of conflict. I think that if you look at the Democratic Party today, it's a, you know, it's a very broad coalition. Like you have to unite hipsters in Greenpoint with church ladies in South Carolina. Right. Um, and when you have to do that, you have to be respectful of many different types of people. Like, you know, you can't, you know how like every Republican politician is like, he goes up and he gives a, a, a stump speech about, um, you know, Starbucks lattes and NPR tote bags and like right. all these stupid stereotypes. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, and, and you really can't do that if you're Joe Biden. Like, right. you, you, you can't, you can't be like, hey, cowboy, why don't you, you know, uh, support some gun regulations before you shoot yourself in the face? Like, right. you just can't, you know, you, you can't disrespect people in that way because you're, path to power relies on such a diverse, you know, racial, religious, ideological coalition right. that, you know, you have to persuade people rather than just, you know, fire up the people who are like you. Um, and I think, you know, those types of coalitions, I mean, the Democratic Party is not certainly not the first such coalition in American history. Um, and I think, you know, that kind of partnership um you know is not i don't think that is rooted in cruelty it's rooted in it's rooted in idealism and you know there are there are uh different examples of such coalitions in the book um but the point is you know cruelty is certainly a a a tool for forming community but it is not the only tool we have and you know you can see examples of how people from very different walks of life can come to see their interests as convergent um, despite how different they are, um, and you know, build a politics on that kind of shared interest um, and tolerance, and you know, it happens all the time. It's not just something that um, you know. It's it's not mythical. We actually do it. Um, so I think yes. I think the answer is yes. It's that I, I think what's striking about the Trump era is just how much he excelled at using cruelty as a tool for creating community um, and was so unashamed of it in a way that I think, you know, it's been a long time since we've seen a politician like that. Yeah. And like the ways that he was able, as you point out, to make people feel good about themselves through, you know, like villainizing other people. And I just found that to be 
well, really depressing. And, and also like, it makes so much sense. You know, like one of the things that I appreciate about your book is that it makes so much sense. There was nothing in your book where I was like, no, even when my initial <laughs> impulse was to be like, wait, what? I was like, no, that actually makes a lot of sense. <laughs> like, I just, it's just really like logical to, I don't know if, that, if that's because, I mean, I think it's because you're a great writer, but I also think it's because we probably are similarly aligned um, mm-hmm. and on a lot of our thinking and our, and our perspective and on the world, et cetera. But I just, I found it to be like that argument that it was like that the cruelty is the thing. It just really clicked for me. And I'm wondering when did that click for you? When did you realize like that was the thing that was happening? The, the sort of depoliticized um, analogy I use to explain title of the book is like you know when you're a kid and there's like cool kids who are teasing another kid and you know maybe you know you want to join in with the cool kids so you can be a cool kid too or maybe you just simply don't say anything because you don't want to be teased or you know there's a rare few of us who might actually stand up for that kid um but the point is that the kids who are doing the teasing are you know this act of transgression and cruelty they're they're forming community um, in which the nerdy kid is on the outside. Now, some of us have experienced this personally. Some of us have been on one side of that or the other, but we all know it exists. We all know mm-hmm. what that looks like. And this is, you know, this is just an elevation of that um, to a political level. Uh, and so what, you know, what I try to emphasize is that it's not, you know, although Donald Trump was personally cool um, and clearly enjoyed it. And to some extent, I don't think, you know, I think that the, I think Donald Trump and, and the people who are his worst critics are actually generally in agreement about what Donald Trump is about. I think it's the people who support Donald Trump and don't want to feel bad about what they're supporting who mm. sort of have to tell themselves that it's about something different. Whereas he will simply say, you know, you know, I, I remember when he was, um, you know, he, he was uh, going after Colin Kaepernick and he said, get that son of a bitch off the field. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he told any like the New York Times reported later that he told his he told his advisors, he was like, my people love this. Right. Um, you know, so he knows what he's doing. He's very aware. Um, and it's sort of there is a sort of conservative media industry whose job it was to launder those frank expressed thoughts into something that would be more palatable. Um, but it is, you know, it's it's a question of human nature. Like we're all capable of enjoying someone else's misery or, you know, deliberately attempting to make another person miserable. Uh, the, the issue is that, um, you know, we have a political system that in- incentivizes this type of politics where, you know, it's, it, you know, demonizing the people who are outside of this particular geographically, ideally geographically distributed population that supports the Republican Party is a means to maintain power. Um, and until that politics stops being rewarding, they're not going to stop engaging in it. They may not be as good at it or as effective as Trump. Trump brought in a lot of, you know, low propensity voters um, into the system, in part because I think for some people, his nastiness uh, was a symbol of a kind of incorruptibility. Right. Um, uh, you know, he was unwilling to adhere to society's expectations of, of how a politician was supposed to speak, which meant that he was a person of integrity who, you know, would stand up for the little guy against the big guy when he actually is the big guy. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, I mean, look, th- these are, you know, the point of the book is not, you know, that only Trump and Trump supporters are capable of this. It's that um, both Trump in particular and our system in general, um, you know, Trump in particular was able to exploit this in part because of the uh, uh, the way that our system has been constructed. And it's not something that is going to leave or disappear simply because, you know, Trump is no longer president. Right. Obviously, we, we've talked a lot about Trump because I think that's sort of like the framework of the book. However, there's a lot of essays in the book that are like more tangentially related to Trump. Um, I mean, there's this incredible essay about uh, Louis Farrakhan and um, the Women's March. And then there are some, I mean, some really great essays on immigration. And there's one on police unions. And I don't know, how do you know so much about so many things? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the truth is that I spent a lot of time reading. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's just, when people ask me, like, how I come up with essays, the truth is that I am constantly reading stuff that I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how I find ideas for stories. Like, obviously, you know, uh, I, you know, I, I go out and I report, I talk to people, I pick up the phone, but I'm not like the scoopiest reporter. You know, what I've found is that my, um, you know, the way I feel like I can be most informative is by uncovering things that uh, are relevant to the, to the present that people are not thinking about or not discussing. Um, and the subjects that you mentioned, I mean, some of those are like personal to me. Like I, I went to high school in Washington, DC um, and I, you know, I knew nation of Islam kids. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was, I was, uh, I remember the day the million man March happened and my school was empty. Um, and so, you know, the, the, some of these are like related to my personal experiences. Um, and some of them are simply like topics of interest um, and things that uh, I wanted to write during the Trump years, but I could not because I, I simply didn't have, you know, I, I, I didn't quite finish them um, or get them. I, I, they weren't quite ready for prime time mm-hmm. um, or they weren't, you know what I mean? Like yeah. it, it, it was just things that I, I was, I felt really strongly about that I wanted to explore that I, I wasn't able to while he was in office. I mean, the, the essay on immigration, for example, which sort of traces um, Stephen Miller's family's immigration to the United States as a way to illuminate um, how drastically the American immigration system has changed over the past hundred years was inspired. In fact, by, by 2016, when I was going to these Trump rallies and people would tell me, you know, my family can't came the right way. Why can't, you know, why can't these immigrants today come the right way? And that was fascinating to me because of course, you know, we had open borders for Europeans for most of the history of the United States. Right. Um, And we developed this sort of militarized border um, specifically to keep out um, migrants, um, you know, m- migrants from 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 Mexico and Latin America, because uh, you know we wanted to be able to exploit their labor, but we didn't want them to come here and become citizens of the United States. Um, and so, you know, these were sort of just topics of fascination that um, I simply did not like. There were so many things to write about uh, during the Trump era, which is sort of interesting because I do not think he as a person is that complicated or interesting. Like I think his um, appetites are very clear. Um, right. His ideological predilections are very clear. There's only so much to say about his behavior. Right. Um, I think what's more interesting is why did we give this person power? Um, and so, you know, I'm 
and and what the book does is sort of I'm looking at uh, at American history for answers to that question um, because I think it's an important question because how you know it also goes to how do we move on from this uh, now that it's over or is it actually over? Do you think um, we? Do you think you have an idea of how we move on from this now that it's over? Slash, is it over? <laughs> I, I really, I think that the ultimate meaning of the Trump era is one that the American people are writing right now. Um, it could, it, it, it's, I don't think it's possible to say what that meaning is going to be. I think it really, you know, a lot depends on, you know, what happens in the next couple of years. But I do not think that it is, I, I don't think we know yet. Are you um, it optimistic? May, I am neither optimistic nor pessimistic. You're just um, mystic. I think that <laughs> I'm just mystic. Yeah. Uh, no, I just think I have been humbled so many times by trying to predict outcomes mm -hmm. uh, that I don't try to do it anymore. I just try to say, you know, this is what we've, this is what's happened in the past in similar situations. Um, and so this is, you know, and this is, these are the events that are shaping um, our politics going forward. But I don't like to make predictions because, uh, you know, life will humble you. You, you. you just never know. Yeah. So when you're, you know, at home reading the news or watching the news or consuming the news, however you get it, you're just sitting there being like, this is interesting that this is happening. I wonder how this plays out. Or are you going both directions? Like, okay, this is worst case scenario. This is best case scenario. Like, how do you kind of, because you have to at some point come up with an opinion about these things to be able to, to then spend time writing them. So I think, I think there's like, for political writers, there's a tremendous incentive to focus on prediction. Mm. Um, and the reason for that is, is that life is chaotic and uncertain. And we want the stability of feeling like we know what, what is going to happen next. Mm -hmm. The problem is that people are pretty bad at predicting things. And if you look at like even the tools we have for predicting things that are pretty good recently, they, they haven't been so good. Like because right. of a partisan non-response in polling, it looked like Joe Biden was going to have like an FDR like victory over Donald Trump. Um, but he did not. Um, and he did not because the polling was not correct. Um, and so, you know, I, uh, it is very tempting to try and say, you know, well, this is going to happen or that's going to happen. But what I've found is that I stay, I can ground myself and I say, describe what is happening. Mm. Uh, not what's going to happen, but what is happening at this particular moment. Um, and I find that, you know, again, the past is very helpful with that because it's a map to, to, to the present. Um, but I try, you know, as much as people want you to say, here's what happens next. I've found that, um, it is actually very hard to say what happens next as much as people want you to do that. Are there things that you look for or, or not to predict, but to kind of help you situate yourself and where we are now kind of things? Like, are there, you know votes in the Senate that are particularly guidepost-y or, or moments that you're like, okay, if this happens, I have a better sense of which way, which way we're headed or not even that for you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, because, you know, when you, when things happen, uh, you know, uh, events change. Like if the, if, if, if the Democrats in the Senate suddenly decided, um, 
actually, we're going to admit D.C. and Puerto Rico as states. That's that that immediately changes. Right. Um, you know, the, the playing field. Um, on the other hand, if, you know, the Democrats decide we're not going to do anything about all these voting laws being passed in the states, that also changes the playing field. Right. Uh, or, or, or at least it, it tells you something about uh, what, what outcomes could be. I think the 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 challenge actually um, is to say is to tell people what is happening in a way that they can understand it, mm. um, and, and, and I think it's harder than people think it is. Um, I, I think it's uh, it's much easier in some ways. It's much easier to write about the future because you can imagine whatever outcome you want, right? Um, right. And you're not you're not necessarily bound by uh, the strictures of the present, but you know, but but sometimes. I think, and, and we saw this with Trump, I think early on, especially people were trying to sort of mislead themselves about what they were seeing with their own eyes. Right. And, and that, and so, you know, and that for, for various reasons. And I, and so I, I think the challenge remains seeing things as they are. Um, mm-hmm. and I think it's more difficult than people think. And I think, you know, it, predicting the future is very tempting, but it's very hard not to fall into sort of evidence-free speculation. Right. Are there any things that are not in this book that you wish were? There was a piece I wrote on the Supreme Court um, and it's embrace of basically, so uh, just to give a little context here, um, you know, the end of Reconstruction came with blood and fire. Basically the Democrats and their paramilitary allies um, overthrew the Reconstruction government's largely by, you know, intimidating and, you know, violently oppressing black voters. Um, And, but what happened after that was that there were all these Republican appointed justices on the Supreme Court, whom you would expect to be sympathetic to the issue of black rights. Instead, they basically slowly wrote the Civil War amendments out of the Constitution. And I wrote this piece in 2018 when Kennedy was stepping down saying, look, you know, the current conservative majority on the Supreme Court has a similarly narrow view of the Reconstruction Amendments to where they are not going to defend um, Americans' uh, rights to due process and anti-discrimination because they think these are unjustifiable interferences by the federal government into the prerogatives of the states or into people's individual rights to discriminate. Um, And that piece didn't end up in the book in part because I was unsure about whether it ended up, you know, being accurate. But I think when you look at the the most recent ruling on Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which is basically the most spurious concerns of fraud justify um, ignoring the 15th Amendment to the Constitution, which guarantees the right to vote free from discrimination on the basis of race. Um, I think you sort of, uh, I I sort of wish that essay was in there now. Um, But you know, at the time, I was sort of unsure about whether my assessment had actually been correct, in part mm. because of some unusual rulings from the Supreme Court. And this is honestly, this is a smokescreen that always happens. <laughs> um, this is what the Roberts Con- Court has done for years. They've always hidden extremely right wing rulings in the occasional um, socially liberal ruling. So, you know, they'll strike down DOMA, but they'll also gut Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Um, that's, um, you know, that's a very consistent strategy that Roberts has had. And I sort of regret allowing it to snow me about what I was actually saying at the time, um, Mm. because uh, I feel like it definitely uh, played out as I said. 
That's a, that's really interesting. I, I'm a, I'm obsessed with um, people talking about the Supreme Court because I just don't feel that I'm smart enough to fully understand what's going on over there with those guys and gals. But um, so maybe your next book could be about the Supreme Court for me. <laughs> people overcomplicate it. I'll be honest with you. People overcomplicate it. First of all, I, I used to cover the Supreme Court for a couple of years. I did mm-hmm. it for Mother Jones and I did it for MSNBC. And I, and I really enjoy covering it because it's like the closest thing we have to like a, a wizard's conclave and like a fantasy novel. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where it's like you, you have like the judges in their robes and they do their weird legal incantations and you have to sort of predict uh, or analyze what their, um, you know, what the ruling will be, what their reasoning will be, you know, what arguments are going to appeal to them. It's like so much more art than science. Um, And and there's so much um, formality um, and ritual to the Supreme Court. Like when you're when you're in there and like you hear the guy call, oh, yay, oh, yay. Yeah. You know, it's just like there's so much. um, There's something it's like very. uh, Like mystical. I'm trying to think of the word. Right. It's very mystical. It's very like, you know, there's there's a kind of, you know, I'm sorry for making a Harry Potter reference, but there's like a Hogwarts ishness to it. I don't um, know the Harry me, Potter. Like, this is this is my one failing. I have actually never film. read those. Me books. neither. I've never I've even never seen the movies. And now I probably. But never I just will. mean the trappings of right. like you know wizards and robes type shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel um, you. That's what that's what it's like. Um, and I enjoyed it. It was really interesting. I got to cover a lot of interesting cases, um, and it's much less complicated than people think it is. The truth is that these guys come up with what lawyers really like doing is coming up with elaborate, complicated explanations for things that a regular person could actually summarize and explain very easily. Mm. Um, But because they're lawyers and they're sort of taught to think in labyrinths, um, this is, you know, whatever they come up with is always um, overly complicated um, which in turn inspires interpretations of the law that can be really strange and creative in order for, you know, someone to get the thing that they wanted that the law probably says that they can't get. Um, and, you know, a lot of it just simply depends on, you know, how many of the justices you can convince to take your side. And when you're a conservative attorney and there are six Republican appointed justices on the Supreme Court, you're going to get your way most of the time. Right. There was um, a really good supreme court podcast um from npr more perfect i think is what it was called and it was really great and i loved it because they talked about like older rulings and like kind of helped explain how they shape things like they did like dred scott but they also did um cory matsu and like anyways it was really great and i loved it and i feel like they need to someone needs to do a podcast about the supreme court called like there's a ruling for that. And they like go through the rulings and like explain what the fuck they mean, because I love learning about it. I just never can understand the, like when they set put out their little opinions and their little dissents or whatever. I'm like, I don't know where we are here. It's pretty fascinating. The issue I think with the Supreme court is that sort of dynamic that I'm talking about where there's like a big landmark ruling. that seems very socially liberal hiding, you know, a history of reactionary rulings and I think that this, this is like sort of America's relationship to the Supreme Court in general is everybody thinks about Brown um, or they think about the Warren Court and they think that the court has historically been this progressive force in American history when it's actually one of the most reactionary um, institutions in American history. It almost mm-hmm. always sides with the powerful and the wealthy. Um, and, and, and I mean, in a historical sense, I don't just mean the Roberts Court. Right. Um, and it has this extensive record and it's sort of 
um, hidden by, you know, things like Brown or, you know, striking down DOMA or legalizing same-sex marriage. Um, you know, th th these are these kinds of like, you know, huge progressive landmarks are, you know, very few and far between. And I feel like that sort of speaks what we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation, which is like that the history writes a version of or like history can write a version of what happened that isn't actually true. You know, like that right. we Power think justifies itself. Yeah, exactly. And like that there weren't all these other horrible rulings that were harmful to to everyday humans as opposed to the rich and powerful. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook, with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. I'm going to totally transition to your process in writing. Sure. I want to know sort of how you wrote this book, like I know obviously you wrote many of the essays over time 
in different parts of your life, but sort of how do you write? Where are you? How many hours a day? Do you listen to music? Do you light a candle? Do you have snacks and beverages? Like what is Adam's writing vibe? This is going to sound totally insane. I can't um, wait. Everyone has a different it, answer and there's, it's literally everyone thinks their answer is the weirdest one and everyone's is the same, but different. Your <laughs> listeners are going to be like, your listeners are going to be like, Adam has an eating disorder oh, um, no. and he needs to. So basically, so basically a, a few years ago, um, I started doing intermittent fasting and I started oh, okay. doing it like once a day where I'd like fast until dinner time uh, okay. or sorry, once a day, once a week. And then eventually it just like expanded to the rest of the week. Okay. Um, You're my husband, I think. Was... My husband does not eat ever. <laughs> it's very, drives me crazy. But here's the thing. I eat. I just don't eat until six, but I eat, I eat whatever I want. It's glorious. It's wonderful. But in that period of time, um, you know, particularly in the morning, I only drink water and coffee. Um, and the reason for this is, is I've, what I found was that I have a lot more energy when I don't eat hmm. during the day. I used to like strictly plan my meals where I like have, I'd have breakfast, I have like an egg sandwich, and then I'd have like a salad for lunch. And then, you know, but what happened is like, I was, every time I ate, I would be tired. And I would mm. spend like 10 minutes or, you know, 30 minutes, like messing around on the internet or something. Right. And I find that I'm much more focused when I'm fasting. Um, which is going to like, again, everybody's going to think I'm a crazy person. <laughs> the other thing is that I have to run every day. Okay. Um, it is How like close a, do you run like, to your eating? Because this was my problem with intermittent fasting. Um, I think that it is, um, it is much easier to run in the morning when you are still like, you have like the dinner from the night before Got in it. your system. Got it. Um, if you wait until the end of the day, you are going to be like, I mean, I think technically it's better for you because you're burning your, your reserve energy, but it sucks. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, but what I found is that I, um, the adrenaline helps me organize my thoughts for writing. Um, and particularly in the morning, um, the morning is when I have my best, um, my, the morning is my best writing time. Um, I can write at night. I can write until like really early in the morning if I need to. But as I get older, that aspect of uh, like, I can't, I mean, it used to be like when I was in college, it, there was like where you, when you slept, when you ate and when you worked and it didn't have any relationship to day or night, okay. um, but I can't do that anymore. It really fucks me up if I try to work, you know, late, it, you know, late into the night. So I find like my best hours are in the morning and my best writing is done post run. And you run seven um, days a week. I... This is this is gonna sound insane. I run eight miles a day, four days a week, wow. and then on two of my off days, I run um, three and a half miles, and then on Sunday, I I don't run at all. Okay, can I? I used to be a runner. I have I have a lot of running questions now, and I don't want to I don't want to get too personal. <laughs> How long does it take you to run those eight miles? It takes me exactly um, one hour and four minutes. Wow. Exactly. Every time you, you're just like Mr. Consistency. I'm, I'm obsessed with this for you. I love this. Okay. Have you ever done like the whole marathon thing? Did you ever do that? No, I have never been in a race ever. So that so this is, this is a little more personal than, than I probably should get, but please do. This is a podcast. That is what podcasts are for. Here is the thing about <laughs> me that like my like insane, like discipline with exercise stems from, um, high school. Okay. When I, you know, I was like a chubby kid and I used to get picked on and I used to get in a lot of fights. And 
at some at, at about the age of 16, 17, I started running and I lost a ton of weight. And something that I noticed is that people treat fat people very, very differently. Yes. Um, and, and I know that because I was fat and then I lost weight. And in my mind, I'm still like, despite the fact that I'm 40 years old and I haven't been overweight in a very long time, um, that like mindset is still in there. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's sort of like in a weird way. Um, I mean, it's like force of habit, but it's also just, uh, the knowledge, um, it, it, like part of it is motivated by the knowledge that people really do treat you differently if you uh, if if you are physically different. It's 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 sort of absurd, um, but it's just the way the way it is. Okay, and why no racing? You just never wanted to. You oh, never thought like, oh, I just have I no, it's, it is it. entirely it, it is entirely a health thing for me. I have no okay. desire to be competitive um, oh. with exercising. Are you competitive? Am I competitive in general? Yes. yes. But That's with exercising, I have no, I have no, um, I have no motivation for it because um, I, I can't, I can't really explain it. I just don't care. Okay. That's fair. It's, um, you know, I feel like, you know, people are always telling me like I should race uh, because it's fun and I can imagine it being fun, but in a weird way, I don't do it because it would break my routine. Mm. Um, and I'm like very much married to that routine. That's fair. Um, I, I have, I, I used to run and I used to do races because I, it was the only way that I would run was like to be working towards something, but I've since long stopped running, not long stopped. I ran a few weeks ago, but I just, it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't do the same thing for me as it used to. I don't know. Anyways. I, I mean, I just like, if it did not, I think if it, I mean, I think there's two things is one, it, it's sort of like that, um, you know, as I said earlier, that sort of memory of, of being a kid. Um, that motivates me, but it's also just that it's so, it's such an important part of my writing process in terms right. of like getting my brain to start like the wheels in my brain to start turning. Like I think of some of my best lines when I'm running and I'm lost in an adrenaline haze because my body is trying to get itself to keep going. Mm. Um, and, and I, I think I would probably be a worse writer if I didn't have that. That's fair. I'm curious about when you revisit, when you revisited your work for the book, were you hypercritical of yourself? Is that some, is that a, a, an attribute of yourself that exists or were you sort of pleasantly surprised or, you know, disappointed in, in, in anything like going back and rereading your work to kind of bring it back into the world. And then on top of that, I know that, um, one of your teachers in your, in your life was KSA Lehman. And I know he's like Mr. Revision. So I'm wondering if you did do revision on any of the essays. I love KSA so much. I, do I probably too. wouldn't be I probably wouldn't be a writer without Kiese. He's the greatest human. He, uh, you know, me, I met Kiese um, when I was 19 years old. And uh, I walked into my first college classroom and he was teaching his first college class, which is a class called Literature from the Underground, hmm. where we had to like, you know, we were reading like Tol Tolstoy and Jay-Z, which is, yes, <laughs> like that, that is literally how Kiese Lehman teaches classes. Oh, a dream. Um, and he was, he, he was just... Um, He's an interesting teacher because he is not, you know how some teachers will just like tell you you're wrong, mm -hmm. right? Kiese will ask you questions mm. to lead you to the conclusion that he knows you have yet that to you're arrive wrong. at that is going to, well, not necessarily that you're wrong, but that you've done something or you, you have not entirely thought through something that you've said or written right? or why you said or wrote it. 
Um, and it's not so much that you're wrong, but he wants you to understand why you did that and whether or not that was actually what you wanted to do. Mm. And so he, you know, he, he's just like an extraordinary teacher. And uh, I, I feel very fortunate to have had him as, um, a, as a professor and, and also just as a friend. Like, you know, Kiese was an, uh, I don't know how much he talked to you about this, but he was basically like an informal therapist for all the students of color at Vassar for, mm. for years. Yeah. You know, like, you know, he, he was taking on, and this is, you know, pretty common, I think, but this is, you know, he was taking on um, burdens far beyond, you know, the classes he was teaching. Right. Because, you know, these are, you know, these are environments that can sometimes be very unwelcoming uh, to students of color. And he was very, um, and he was very much there to support people. Um, his office door was always open. In fact, he probably um, let us in to talk to him more than he should have, um, you know, but, but he was like, he was just an extremely generous soul and, and still is. But in terms of like writing and being hypercritical, look, I, I don't want to get too much into my own headspace, but I think that writers are extraordinarily self-critical. Um, I think it's like, a necessary sort of um i don't mean this in a little literal darwinian way but a sort of necessary um evolutionary part of the process is you have to be able to be self-critical to have an internal um mental process that is capable of producing writing um and if you don't i think that can lead you to a bad place in terms of not being as i mean particularly if you're if you're writing polemics you have to be able to anticipate counter arguments mm -hmm. not just because you know of what people might say to you but because your argument will not be strong if you are not considering the strongest opposition to that argument mm. um something that uh Ta-Nehisi Coates he came to speak to a group of reporters uh, I was with at one point and he said you know one thing that I like to do is I like to take the strongest version of the opposing argument and I, I like to beat it to pieces not the weakest version, not the one you can most easily make fun of or most easily mock or get everybody to laugh at, but the strongest one. Um, and that's what makes for a compelling piece. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. This is, uh, maybe this is too personal. I don't know, but what is a word you can never spell correctly on the first try? <laughs> I don't think that's that personal. <laughs> no, I was just kidding. I'm just giving you a hard time. Is... I'm giving you a hard time. Uh... Um, I don't. No, are you? I'm a great I mean, I'm trying to. Speller? I'm sure there is one. I'm not a good speller. Okay. I'm not. A, I'm not a good speller. But the thing about phones, yeah, is that they have eliminated the need to be a good speller because they autocorrect. Yeah, no, it's true. So, I mean, let, let 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 me just put it this way. Actually, I'll I will use the phone thing to tell you a, a, a word that I never spell correctly. Um, and I'll just say that that word is definitely not duck. Okay. <laughs> It's like the phone really thinks everyone's obsessed with ducks. Like, give me a break, yeah. iPhone. No, that's, I'm, not, I'm not trying to say duck. That's not yeah, what I'm trying I'm to say. I'm not doing that. That's so funny. Okay, I have just two more questions for you. One is for people who love this book, and I know that you're going to have a lot of answers, but you can try to narrow it down for me. For people who love this book, what are a few books you would recommend that are sort of in conversation with the work that you've done? Um, I would highly recommend um, How the Word is Passed yes. uh, by Clint Smith, my colleague, um, which is very much about how Powell or maintains um, a, a, a self-serving kind of public memory. Mm -hmm. 
I think that Nell Irvin Painter's The History of White People is mm. one of the most important books that I've ever read in my life. Um, it's a history of the concept of race. Um, and, you know, as ta says, you know, race is the child of racism, not the father. And this mm. is uh, an important book for documenting that whole process. I think that, uh, you know, Black Reconstruction in America is, is one of my favorite books. Um, I think it, it's just, I think it's hard to understand America if you have not read that book. Mm-hmm. If you've never read Paula Giddings' Ida, A Sword Among Lions, this is an extraordinary book because it's a biography of Ida Wells, but there's so much tea in it. Mm. Like it, it, it is like very much a book <laughs> that is also about the social, like this, the, this kind of social scene of black intellectuals at like, you know, the nadir of race relations in the United States. All these people who like kind of don't like each other or pe- like people who do like each other, who people who are on the same side of arguments, people who are completely ideologically opposed, but for some reason have some kind of alliance. Like it is just a really fascinating book that is not just a, a wonderful history of Ida Wells's life, but it's sort of an extraordinary portrait of Black American intellectuals at the time. Mm. Um, so it's just a, a really lovely book. Okay. Those are great recommendations. Okay. My last question for you is if you could have one person dead or alive, read your book, who would you want it to be? Wow. That is so mortifying. <laughs> what a question. I don't oh, no. even know how to answer that. I would be so embarrassed if like WB Du Bois like woke up and read my book. I would be like, please don't read my book. Okay. I, well, I maybe it's not him. Maybe it's <laughs> someone else that you're not embarrassed to share your work with. <laughs> I mean, like, cause you, you, you think about like all, like, Obviously, the answer is like you would want somebody who you admire to read your book, but then it's terrifying because what if they don't like it? That's true. That's true. I anyway, I'm, I'm, uh, you're you're pleading the fact. It's okay. Well, I'm, 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 this this question is has given me an existential panic, so I'm not going <laughs> to answer it. However, <laughs> however, I will say that it's a lovely question. I think you should keep answering it, and maybe other people will not react uh, with similar levels of anxiety. Let me just wow. tell you, I've been doing this podcast now for um, three and a half years, and you are the first person to ever not answer it because of anxiety. It's it's so terrifying. What a terrifying question. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't want to end on a terrifying note, but unfortunately, your time here has come to an end. I'm going to send you on your way to just be stressed out. I'm so sorry. This was not my oh, plan okay. for you. This was, this was great. Thank you so much for having this me. This was on the so show. great. Thank you so much. And everyone, you can find The Cruelty is the Point wherever you get your books. It's out now. And you can also subscribe to The Atlantic, where Adam writes, along with Clint and Van, who we all heard earlier this year on the show. My fate, my, it's like you guys are like the Rushmore. I love those guys. I mean, so great. It's like the, just the, the Atlantic has like become this like quiet, like is quietly like recruited this murderers murderers row of like black writers and i just love it it's so great um, it's and just, i love it too <laughs> it's not like it's like you know at one time i think you know tanahasi was very much identified with the magazine but now there's like there's like there's no one black writer you can identify with the atlantic because there are so many of us and it's yeah. a beautiful thing it's so great so yes yeah, subscribe to the atlantic get the book adam thank you so much for being here thanks for having me and everyone else we will see you in the stacks Thank you for listening and thank you to Adam Sora for being my guest. Also, a huge thank you to Rachel Parker, Shauna Carlos, and Melanie DiNardo for working to make this episode happen. Our August book club pick is Emergency Contact by Mary H.K. Choi, which we will discuss on the show on Wednesday, August 25th with Juliet Littman. 
If you like what you hear, consider supporting The Stacks by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash The Stacks. Please make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter and check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Sebastian Alcala is our sound editor and producer. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. Thank you.